I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I'm born of the same stock as the people who have recorded and preserved Ukraine's history. I will do what I can to help the country, but help me find myself. I'm Hannah. I'm Caitlin. And this is FC, the Ukrainian Dance and Culture Podcast. Russia's war against Ukraine is ongoing. The war has brought a roller coaster of emotions for many. Um, we've been frustrated, annoyed, angry, heartbroken, and sad. And in other moments, we've felt hopeful, immense pride and patriotism, and a strong love for Ukraine. Among many standing up for Ukraine, plenty of creatives have been sharing their heart, sharing news, and sharing their support for Ukraine by creating graphics, works of art, writing, music, among other creations. This creative movement has been a way for people to connect with what's happening on a different and deeper level. One of these artists is Merit Timchishin, a Ukrainian-Canadian artist working in Winnipeg. We met her through social media and right away felt connected to her. She spent time living, studying, and working in Ukraine, and a lot of her work as an artist is influenced by her Ukrainian heritage. One of her projects is called Ukrainadian, and it's a platform for Ukraine to be heard through stories, arts, food, and music. You can learn more on her website and how you can be part of it, and we will continue sharing about it as she builds this project. Shortly after Russia's full-scale war in Ukraine started, Merit posted a personal essay called Too Foreign for Home on her website. It's a really powerful piece, and so much of it resonated with us, so we wanted to share it with our audience. So here is Merit reading her essay. Too Foreign for Home. Reflections on War, Culture, and Courage from a Ukrainian-Canadian Perspective. A bomb went off down the street from my apartment, killing an anti-Kremlin journalist a week after I left Kyiv. I broke down crying on a bench not far from Old Town in Lviv, in western Ukraine. It was a blistering morning in July, and I had already managed to have a screaming match in Ukrainian with a taxi driver. I hadn't slept on the overnight train from Krakow, where I had been vacationing with two friends from Winnipeg after a few months of working and studying in the Ukrainian capital. I took my backpack off, sat down, and managed to connect to a local cafe's Wi-Fi. A message from one of my friends popped up with a link to an article about the Kiev-based journalist. Sharamet's car exploded on the way to host his radio morning show. In the article's photograph, I could see the lecture theater that I passed each day, just a stone's throw away from the iron gate at the entrance to the university flats. The article suggested a remotely detonated device. The native Belarusian was a vocal critic of the Russian government, the Belarusian government, and disgraced ex-president Yanukovych. It was two years since the Euromaidan protests. I was just beginning to learn how ignorant and privileged I was. In the West, our news provides a glossy veneer over the mysteries of Eastern politics. The Euromaidan protests quickly became a closed book to the rest of Europe and North America. It was an easy story to write. A protest started by students against a corrupt government. 
weeks turning into months of state police violence against journalists and citizens alike. A revolution complete with statues of oppressors toppled and splashed with red. A liberated city, but at the price of nearly 200 heroes. A corrupt leader flees the country, and peace returns to the tumultuous East with a new government. It would be wonderful to tell stories like this. The war didn't end, however. The Revolution of Dignity in 2014 was the first battle that the Ukrainian people won against Russia since Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union. The history of Ukraine's fight for independence is over 1,000 years long. The use of the term dignity is no mistake, as dignity is fought for when the oppressed have said, enough. It has been hundreds of years of enough for Ukrainian people. The war today is a topic for which I unintentionally became well qualified to talk about. I spent summers in both Russia and Ukraine in 2010 and 2016 to complete my degree in Eastern European Studies with a specialization in Ukraine and Russia. I found a degree that would at least allow me to travel and spend a few summers in Europe, backpacking across the continent, catching up with my friends when I wasn't studying. I was going through a bit of an identity crisis when I chose my major. I had returned from a few years of working in the UK, and I felt utterly lost in the city I grew up in. I was looking for something familiar to mentally and emotionally ground me there. At the same time, I wanted to get back across the pond as soon as I could. I liked the idea of learning my dad's first language and learning about Ukraine's history. I wanted to study beautiful Byzantine art, read Russian literature, study past wars, revolutions. Upon making that decision, I dreaded the inevitable question from my parents. It's one that every millennial who dared check the box Faculty of Arts must answer. But what are you going to do with that? My mom hasn't asked me that question in 2022. In the spring of 2016, I bought a plane ticket to Ukraine. I've arranged to finish up some university classes, do some private tutoring, and teach English at Kiev Mohyla University for a summer language program. For the latter part of the summer, I would work for the Klitschko Foundation, a program started by Vitaly Klitschko, internationally acclaimed boxing champion and mayor of Kiev, in a small village in the oblast of Ivano-Frankivsk. One of my great-great-grandfathers was from the same region, and sub-ethnic group, Hutzels, the tribes people of the Carpathian foothills. So I saw this as a sort of ancestral homecoming. I also wanted it to be a long or possibly permanent one. I planned to spend a month teaching English at a summer program in the Carpathian village before heading back to Kiev in the autumn. I prepared a list of English-speaking publications that I planned to apply to, but I would keep teaching English until I found something concrete I had already set up connections to find a new flat in Kiev that fall, but I hadn't told anyone at home. I was preparing a mental draft of what the conversation with my friends and family in Winnipeg would be. No, this is not because I was just dumped. Yes, of course it's completely safe. No, I haven't lost it, and I'm not in trouble. Yeah, I obviously know there's a war going on. In all truthfulness... I wanted to stay in Ukraine because I felt that a part of me or my identity was missing at home. I suppose that's why I started studying my own ancestral heritage at an academic level in the first place. And at the end of August the same year, 
I boarded a plane back home to Winnipeg. When you take your certification for teaching English as an additional language, your instructor generally will speak to the class about cultural awareness in the classroom. Our instructor had spent 10 years in China, as well as time teaching in Brazil and Saudi Arabia. He told some humorous first day at work in a foreign school horror stories of his own foibles past. It's usually okay if you just laugh it off, he said. Usually your students will take it as a good opportunity to break the ice. This instruction did not prepare me for my first day of school as an English instructor. The department head at the university had organized for me to teach a small class of four students before the official summer term started. They were high school students of various ages who were studying for their entrance exams for university or advanced placement programs. I was relieved that the first class I was teaching was so small. It would be easy to handle, easy to provide lots of student-teacher time, and fewer names to learn. I was told that they already spoke English at a high intermediate level, so my lessons would be focused on reaching a comfortable fluency. These four smirking, bright-eyed students filed into my class, quietly speaking in Russian and flashing quick smiles at me. I already loved them. Their personalities were worn on their sleeves. I smiled back and put on my best, albeit nervous, face. <laughs> After introducing ourselves, I explained that to get comfortable with casual conversation each day, the four of them would pick a topic to discuss. I looked around. No one volunteered ideas. The students shrugged at me. Maybe we could talk about something like... I flipped to my notes for clash conversation topics. Travel? The students agreed that it would be a good topic, so I prompted them with a question. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? The first two students talked about how they wanted to go to Paris and New York. Yes, definitely New York. The youngest student, a 13-year-old boy with gray eyes and a serious face, slid up in his chair when it came time for him to talk about his dream travel destination. I said, okay, and what's yours? If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? The boy glanced up at me and then at his older brother, who was also in the class. He responded, If I could travel anywhere, I would go to my home. Oh, I smiled. Where's home for you? Donbass, he said. We used to have a house in Donetsk. I grew up in rural Manitoba. My mother is French-Canadian and Finnish, and my father is Ukrainian. Rather, he is a second-generation Ukrainian-Canadian. He was born and raised in Manitoba, but lived within a culturally and linguistically Ukrainian community. He didn't speak English until he started school, since the family farm operated in Ukrainian perfectly fine. The village where he grew up, Pine River, is a small pocket of Ukrainian-Canadian people nestled in between hills reminiscent of the Carpathians. It's not far from Dauphin, Manitoba, another historically Ukrainian settlement in the prairies and a home to Canada's National Ukrainian Festival. Most Ukrainian Canadians are aware of our own story here. Boats full of people, largely from regions in western Ukraine, were unceremoniously dumped from trains in the middle of the snowy belt of Turtle Island. The Canadians told us, you're going to clear this hard, rocky, and brush-covered land? That's your end of the bargain. That's where you can build. 
You'll build railways for us, and we'll let you build your strange-spired churches. The Korean Anishinaabe peoples helped Ukrainian immigrants survive the first winters. They traded scarves for supplies and food. Ukrainians lived in communities outside of the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking Protestant realm, and often settled in rural areas. Ukrainians learned the botany of the land from indigenous peoples and were able to build their medicinal knowledge. Because of the largely rural population, this important education within the community allowed the Ukrainian settlers to not only survive the prairie winters, but to also survive common afflictions in a land that they were brand new to. My dad would often joke that he and my uncle knew better than to talk shit at their indigenous peers at the small town bar. He said the kids from the res would give it right back to you in better spoken Ukrainian. The Kokum scarf is a symbol of this long-standing relationship between indigenous people of Turtle Island and the Ukrainians who were recruited by the Canadian government to build on their land. Since the late 1800s, Ukrainian Canadians have continued to operate within tightly knit communities. It's important to continue our cultural traditions as well as preserve our language. These things connect us. Unfortunately, but perhaps thankfully, so does our trauma. Ukrainian immigrants and Ukrainian Canadians were thrown into labor camps in World War I, some not released until three years after the war had ended. The Canadian government placed photos of smiling, well-fed enemies of the state, read people of a particular ethnic background, whether they were born here or not, in our textbooks as if to say, the camps weren't that bad, Look at these smiling Ukrainians, Germans, Hungarians. Two decades later, the government did the same thing to Japanese Canadians during World War II. Mass graves of Ukrainian immigrants and other enemies of the state are dotted across the country at sites where labor camps once stood. Outside of our textbooks, I began to understand why my dad and his friends had a chip on their shoulder after moving to Winnipeg in the 70s. Open xenophobia is a hallmark of our Canadian culture. Ukrainians arrived with their dark Slavic features, their onion-domed churches, and their Orthodox religion. They were accompanied by the smells of fragrant incense and pungent foods. Our babas wore scarves to mass and to the grocery store, signifying who and what we were. We were the other. We weren't the white, wonderbred Wellington Crescent Winnipeggers. Language was the barrier that kept us below them. We took labor jobs and formed unions. Many stayed on their farms and in their communities, relying on community-led education of language and tradition. There's an unspoken hierarchy in this diaspora. The country, or solo Ukrainians, were below the city Ukrainians, and the city Ukrainians were split into the Orthodox Ukrainians and the Catholic Ukrainians, Further splitting into the bank Ukrainians and the labor Ukrainians. The problem with the attempts to integrate into a predominantly white supremacist culture, you'll always be the other. The jeers of dumb Ukrainian will follow you into the mechanics shop just as easily as it follows you into the boardroom. It followed me well into my adult life, including into my own workplaces. It's a favorite pejorative of those white wonderbred Wellington Crescent Winnipeggers I mentioned, to whom I used to serve overpriced 
Italian super Tuscans in the fine dining room of an old boys club restaurant in the city. There was an evening when a blonde, middle-aged woman, well slicked with Chardonnay, grabbed my wrist when I extended my arm to refill her wine glass. Oh, what a pretty little tattoo on your arm. She took the liberty of twisting up my shirt sleeve herself. She pointed to where she saw my Trezoup tattoo peeking out on my forearm. What does it mean? I replied that it was the national symbol of Ukraine. She twisted in her chair to wander her eyes at my black uniform and apron resting on my face. She asked if I was Ukrainian, and I told her that I was Ukrainian-Canadian and that I'd just moved back to the city from Kiev, where I'd been studying and working. She let go of my wrist, smirking. Studying, wow! The woman turned back to her table mates, laughing. And here I thought there were only dumb Ukrainians! It was a jarring reminder that we were still the other. I stopped mentally registering the heavy military presence in Kyiv the longer I lived there. There were moments when I forgot that there was a war going on at all. When you start meeting the people of a country, you allow yourself to look beyond the pain of that country. My group of Ukrainian friends were students my age. Creative types in their mid to late 20s, wearing cool vintage finds, design-driven fashion. One friend introduced me to a group of rock musician friends, which ended up expanding into friendships with a local bar owner, a painter, an activist, a guy who pulled down the Lenin statue in Kharkiv, affectionately dubbed in my head as the Ukrainian wife magnet. When I began meeting Ukrainians, I was excited about transcontinental similarities of ideas and values. After all, I assured myself, this was my ancestral homecoming. I was here to learn about my culture, my history, and myself. I would surely find myself with these people. The more I got to know my friends, the less I saw of myself in them. We all had similar aspirations, and we all shared love for our Ukrainian blood. Despite this, I had begun to realize how shallow my own experience of this country was. I shared a culture and a history with these people. Our families had suffered under genocide and wars together. We had the same fierce pride for our heritage. The difference was that I had grown up in a diaspora where the culture developed within a bubble of itself. The reason my family speaks a Hutzel dialect to this day and why Canada exports more Ukrainian dancers to world festivals than any other country including Ukraine. Being a Ukrainian-Canadian means having a shared language, culture, and history to Ukrainian people living in Europe. It is not, however, an identical identity. They are cultures that have developed along parallel timelines on separate continents. We may both wish for the same things, seek comfort in the same traditions, and speak the same tongue, but we have very different neighbors, privileges, and lived realities. Ukrainians and Ukrainian-Canadians are siblings of different ages. They are not twins. When a room or a conversation gets quiet in Ukraine, one of two things will often happen. Someone will start singing, or someone will start talking about the war. When I write the war, I mean the revolution of dignity, but 
as I said, there's so much more weighted history behind 2014. The war is also the Orange Revolution and the fall of the Soviet Union. The war is the bloody price that Ukraine paid for being caught between Russia and Germany in the Second World War. Less than a decade after that, Ukraine was suffering genocide under a dictator intent on destroying the Ukrainian people. Before that, the war against Tsarist Russia, destruction under the Russo-Turkic Wars and Ottoman invasions, the Mongol-Tatar invasion, Khazar invasions, from the moment the first sunflower was planted on the rich black soil, foreign powers have set their eyes on Ukraine. Yet, through the war, Ukraine has survived. It was a humid June night in Kiev, and the room got quiet. It was actually a parking lot outside an old apartment building that had been turned into an event space with a DJ booth and bar. We were there to celebrate our friend's birthday. Five or six of us stood outside while house music pumped upstairs and people flooded in and out of the building. We stood outside talking. There was an unexpected pause in the mutual conversations and a sober chill came over the group. The word Euromaidan trailed off of the tongue. The music didn't actually stop upstairs, but I remember heavy silence. We were a group of partygoers sitting on an old fire escape. The smoke curled up from our cigarettes, and you could hear ash falling against pavement as one woman looked up, tears at the corner of her eyes. She quietly recounted the moment her mother called her, begging her to come home from the protests. She was trying to mop the blood from her classmate's head that was pouring from a gash onto her lap, dealt to him by the iron rod of a barracoon police. She said when she returned home four days later, it took another week to wash the smell of burning tires from her hair. Another friend spoke. He shared that he couldn't imagine leaving for university in Berlin after watching people die on the streets of Kiev. He said that the worst day he could recall was the day the snipers started shooting peaceful protesters. He laughed for a moment before saying, but you know, I don't miss the feeling of wondering if the next step is the wrong one. They spoke in voices that held a heavy weight as they counted people at the university who had been killed by Yanukovych's police. They talked a lot about the smoke and the blood that was smeared around everyone's clothes. You couldn't tell who it was from, one of my friends said as she looked at me. A few stray tears slid down our faces. There was an incredible resilience to my friends' voices. Mine was caught in my throat. It was a reality I could not imagine living through. A lump in my throat grew barbs as I realized that my identity could not be further from the lived experiences of these strong, heroic Ukrainians. When I was a kid, my mother told me about my grandfather's quirks from serving in the Canadian military during World War II. We know what to call it now, and we have the resources and medical knowledge to help treat it. It wasn't something to be spoken about in the 50s, though. During thunderstorms, my grandfather would pull my mom and her brother into the crawl space built into the limestone foundation of our house. 
you'd pull out a deck of cards and they'd play the card game war until the rain stopped. She said that my grandfather always tried to make a light game of it, but she saw that there was a vacant look in his eyes when the thunder would rumble distantly overhead. When the room got quiet that night in June, I recognized the look my mom was talking about in my friend's faces. I lived a cozy student work-life balance in Winnipeg. I had enough to pay my tuition and bills. I could afford to travel to Europe for the summer if I pleased. I had a safety net. I had privilege by virtue of where I was born. More importantly, I lived in a country that was very, very far away from Russia and Putin's influence. When I left Kiev in autumn of 2016, it was because I was burnt out, exhausted, guilt-ridden, and dealing with newly surfaced intergenerational trauma. I had also hardened. I was angrier than ever, frustrated like a wounded animal that lived after it was promised an end to the pain. Why were we the lucky ones? It became my mantra. I breathed it in and out every day, sinking further and further into a spiral of obsessing over dates and timelines of when my ancestors emigrated to different areas of Ukraine and Canada, what they barely escaped or what they didn't. I had such confusion of my identity. These people who were just like me have endured so much. What did I do to deserve to live in such ease? I remember calling my sister on the phone one night from my apartment in Pudzil, telling her, I developed a strong sense of patriotism over here. It's hard not to. It feels like home too. I mean, it makes sense for me to be here, right? I, I just don't know if I can stay. Kiev was a beautiful city that I had fallen in love with. It felt like home, but it also didn't. The didn't was where my courage to stay fell short. I didn't know how to live in this country. I didn't know how to live with the horrors of the dictatorship next door. I didn't know how to watch my friends die. I didn't know how to accept that the next time I left my front door could be my last. I had the privilege to look at this country, her history, her pain, and her beautiful resilience from the outside, and go back home when it got too convenient to feel it all. So I boarded a plane back to Canada instead. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Diaspora Blues by Ijoema Umbinyo We didn't wake up to the sounds of bombs overhead this week. Ukrainians in Kiev and the entire country do not have such privilege anymore. My friends have sent me messages telling me that they're tired, sending photos to confirm when they've received their military-issued weapons. 
artists and web designers who are assuring me that they're staying to fight and that our voices in Canada are important. Ex-students of mine have left fashion and film school to head back to Ukraine or to set up lines of contact for refugees. For some, this has been the entirety of their childhoods or teenage years. They are the Ukrainians who have been defending the country for hundreds of years, and they are resilient. But they need our help. There are some things that you'll need to know going forward if you choose to lend your voice to the topic of war in Ukraine. There is a deep and heavy burden of history on the country. The reality is that right now, this war has nothing to do with an American imperialism. You need to perceive with heavily critical caution when you're reading the news throughout this war. Seek out verified Ukrainian sources first and foremost. In the coming weeks, we'll see Western media giants looking to connect the United States and American interests in every way possible. This war is so much older than America. There is a need for understanding of the role that NATO plays in this war, as well as U.S. President Biden's involvement. The view in North America, however, is already placing an unnecessary importance and incredibly dangerous weight on the United States alone. This is going to continue to bolster anti-war leftists, quotes, who are engaging with Russian propaganda, seeking to demonize any sort of military action or defense in Ukraine. This isn't the American war machine. This one has long been driven by Putin and his desire for Russian expansion. America and NATO are brand new players in this war, the model enemy to which Putin can garner support from his allies and the millions of Russians who have remained silent and complicit. Remember that Ukrainians never wanted this war, but they have every right to defend their homes and independence. The reality on the ground is that war has begun and Ukrainians need help. This is about the Ukrainians who are dying to defend their sovereign country solely because the games of oligarchs and megalomaniacs in the West. This war is about the survival of the Ukrainian people right now, not when it's too late to act. In the coming days, we will need to answer Ukrainians' calls for help. I am already tired of politicians campaigning on the backs of dying Ukrainians. Supporting the right for independence and the lives of every single Ukrainian is something that party lines cannot apply to. We will need to write to our MLAs, MPs, and municipal politicians to put pressure on ensuring that another genocide does not take place. The military needs help. We help their military. Their borders, medical facilities, and transport networks need help. That's where we help anti-aircraft missiles. We help them because we do not know how to protect Ukraine better than they do. This war is not about the political platforms of various global parties, pacifism, or our feelings about the military-industrial complex. How arrogant of us to apply our moral values to the desperate pleas of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. I am an artist. I'm a writer. I'm born of the same stock as the people who have recorded and preserved Ukraine's history. 
I will do what I can to help the country that helped me find myself. Ukraine is and always will be our homeland. This is a truth for Ukrainians across the world, no matter the time in history when our ancestors' feet left the soil. Today, we must do whatever we can to help defend it. When I die, let me rest. Let me lie amidst Ukraine's roadsteps. Let me see the endless fields and sleep steep slopes I hold so dear. Let me hear the Dnipro's great war. And when the blood flows of Ukrainians foe into the blue waters of the sea, that's when I'll forget the fields and hills and leave it all and pray to God. Until then, I know no God. So bury me, rise up, and break your chains. Water your freedom with the blood of oppressors. And then remember me with gentle whispers and kind words in the great family of the newly free. Tara Shevchenko. Thanks so much for your words and for taking the time to share your essay with us, Merit. And we will include all the information you need to find out more about her art, her writing on our platforms and in the show notes. Slava Ukraini! Mm-hmm.